We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support. And now for the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Feel, and we have a, an amazing guest on with us today, one that I was frankly blown away by when I started doing a deeper dive on the research behind this guy. But Dr. Dan Rohn is here to talk about all things research-related and academia-related and grant-related and you name it, this guy's done it. So, you know, Dan, thank you so much for coming on and being a guest and, and just enlightening our audience. But could you tell us a little bit about your academic journey and how it led you to where you are today? Sure. Thanks again, though, for having me on here. I'm uh, just really, really humbled, just kind of got to this point. And so to, to hear those words from somebody, I guess, I don't know, it doesn't seem like I've, anyways, I've, I've come a long ways. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. So just why, how I got here. I went into the military to be a physical therapist. That wasn't always the plan, but you know, they paid for my school and it was always nice to not have any debt. And they actually paid for a couple of degrees. So I went through after I got my, was a master's level physical therapy program. And then I got, I did the transitional DPT. So I got the master's through Baylor, Army Baylor. That was before there was a civilian Baylor PT program. And then I got, I did my transitional doctorate, which they paid for through uh, Temple. And then I came back and did my doctorate of science from a degree through Baylor again that they all paid for. So there was lots of opportunities to kind of advance and, and get more education. It was all paid for. So that was a great incentive to stay in. And I really liked this setting as well, because there's a lot of autonomy in what we do. I would work with a lot of injuries, sports injuries, related injuries, you know, these soldiers that would come in and see us directly without having to, to be referred. And so it was just really rewarding to be able to, to do that. On that end, I deployed to Iraq as a physical therapist for one of the brigade combat teams in the 4th Infantry Division. So I spent a whole year in Iraq, really just seeing lots of musculoskeletal injuries. You know, we think of a lot of battle wounds during armed conflicts. But the reality is that the large majority of injuries are not related to combat and combat trauma. So if you think of uh, having a couple hundred thousand, you know, service members all in one place, like you're going to have back pain and shoulder, you're going to just have injuries that occur. And so I was really, really busy out there, but really nothing else to do. It's not like I had a long commute to work or I could go home in the evenings or weekends, right? So so that was rewarding in a unique kind of way. It just, you know, it felt uh, meaningful to take care of all the soldiers. But, you know, as things happen, I really like the fact, the part of my story that, you know, I like is that I was a clinician for a long time before becoming a full-time researcher. So, you know, a good 12, 14 years of, of clinical practice. And so I think that helps really inform the types of questions like, 
if you've been practicing out there, uh, just like being a good educator, I think if you've done it for a while, you understand not just the book knowledge, but these are the tips. These are the things that I want to pass on to everybody. And so what happened is, of course, there's a lots of frustrations with the health system and how we deliver things. You know, you don't get all your patients better. You know, you learn what some of those inconsistencies are. You pay attention. You think, man, we really need to improve this. We really need to improve that. So you come up with a lot of ideas about, man, this is what I'd like to know a little bit more about, or this is what we should do better. And so along that process, shortly after I got my doctorate of science, I was connected with Dr. Julie Fritz for a career development grant award. And with this, you get a mentor and you put together a proposal. It was a DOD grant and you work on a project. And the whole idea is that you, you develop your research skills so that you can then become an independent researcher. And I don't know how successful those things typically are. I hear that it's kind of hit or miss, but in my case, it was great. That was my first grant. You know, it was for $260,000. I remember thinking, you know, when I got that, I've made it, you know, I've reached the pinnacle of man, life just doesn't get better than this. I, I was like on cloud nine for, <laughs> for a long time, just thinking, man, this is great. And, you know, since I think my highest in comparison, I mean, I've gotten grants now that are five to $6 million. So that's like nothing. But then that was super, super impactful. And so then it was kind of scary. It was like someone just handed you, I mean, they didn't hand it to me. They go through the grants office, but it's really like, here's all this money and we'll see you in a couple of years with the product that you have to deliver. And so it's a little overwhelming, but it's also a little empowering. It's like, whoa, someone is, you know, believes in what I have to do enough to want to fund my idea. And that's just really empowering. Like I've got a lot of power, if you will, at my disposal with all these funds and resources. And so that really kind of started things. And I started applying for more grants and getting a little bit better at the process. I wouldn't say I've definitely uh, figured that out yet. You know, I mean, I still get rejected on way more grants that I get approved for, but it's a process. It's a continuously learning process. So now I'm, I'm pretty much, you know, research full-time. That's kind of my, how my career kind of transitioned from full-time clinical to now full-time kind of a research professor in, uh, and I'm affiliated with a couple of different organizations, still the Army Baylor programs that I, you know, uh, give a lot back to, as well as the Uniform Services University of Health Sciences. It's the in, in Bethesda and Duke University as well that I have a research affiliation with. So all my research takes place still in the military health system. So it's health services research, multi-center trials. I have, well, anyways, we can go in, into that as much as we need to or not, but that's kind of the bigger story. I, I retired from the army about three years ago, kind of what happened. I'll diverge to that. But, you know, in, when you stay in, in the military and you're in, in uniform, as you start moving up the ranks, you start getting more and more administrative responsibilities. And so I was at this crossroad where I was starting to get these grants, but the army saying like, hey, you're a leader. We didn't pay you to, to do research, you know, which they didn't. And you can't cover your salary when you're on active duty because you're a government employee. And so that wasn't the only reason, but you could get to this, this crossroad where it's, you know, if I want my research career to continue moving forward, I'm not going to be able to continue, you know, stay in uniform. And I had reached my 20 years, which is the minimum that before you can retire from the military, that was part of it. And then I've got three kids and they were reaching that age where moving every two or three years, which happens often in the military starts to become really challenging. And so we wanted some stability for the kids. So it just seemed like a right transition point. And I kind of chose the, the career path of research. And that's what I'm doing now.
Yeah. What a journey, man. That just that you hit on a lot of points there. I just want to touch on a couple of them. First off, thank you for your service. I mean, that can't say enough good things about our, our people in uniform. And, and you know, we've had uh, Danny Matei on the show before to talk about tactical patients and, and, you know, some of the tactical uh, training and stuff and how he worked through the the Army Baylor program as well. And yeah. I think coming out of that program without any debt is such a huge point to take away. I think that's a great program, you know, and, and I think any program where you can come out debt free is huge. I mean, that's part of the reason I wrote my book, PT Educator Student Debt Eliminator, because it's mm-hmm. such a big problem right now. And the debt to income ratio and physical therapy is bad and getting worse. Um, yeah. That's a whole nother issue. Next up, I just kind of want to talk a little bit about, you know, that transition that you talked about going from clinical full-time to uh, research full-time and knowing what to research and the problems to address based off of your clinical experience and how huge that is. Because I'm kind of doing, you know, from clinical full-time into academia full-time. And I just thought I'd know all the stuff so I, I could just teach, right? But I didn't realize that I didn't even know how to learn until I went through an EDD program. And and honestly, my mind was blown. I was like, man, I've been studying wrong this whole time. <laughs> I've been learning wrong this whole time. So, you know, it, it really was a job transition and a, and a change in professions going from clinical to academia. And so, you know, I'm sure you saw that a little bit moving over to the clinical it, it, or the, you know, some of the research from the clinical, it, it really is a, a pretty drastic change at first, you know, talk a little bit about that mentorship program and, and how that kind of helped got you, get you going or, or started in the, in the clinical realm and, you know, or the research realm, I should say, and maybe just, you know, give a couple tips to, to somebody who may be looking to transition from, you know, clinical into research or, or who may have a knack for research, even as a DPT student. Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a good question. It, I think for a lot of people, Research is this catch-22 where, you know, if you're in academia, you want time for research, but you're, you know, the way the system is set up, it's like, okay, get yourself grants, and then that'll pay for your time for research, but then you don't have the time unless you're given the time for research to write the grants, and you get caught in this cycle, and it, it can be really challenging. I you know, I didn't make this hard transition. I went from full-time clinical to maybe like 80% clinical to like 60% clinical. Like it, I always told myself that I would, you know, I mean, I'm OCS, I'm, you know, fellowship trained. I'm like all these things that I always, and I really enjoyed seeing patients. I always told myself like, I'm, I'm never going to step out of the clinic completely. And so I always wanted to keep my hands in the clinic. It's just, it's become challenging just in the last couple of years because, you know, to do my job now really well, that's the hard thing to do my job really well as a researcher. Like I just run out of bandwidth and I can only give up maybe like a day or so here. And that's just hard to work with clinics when patients need a steady follow-up, they need to see the same therapist. So the continuity of care is challenging. So we're caught in this catch 22 because we always say we need clinicians to help us do better research, but the clinicians don't have time And the clinicians are saying, well, we need researchers to do better research. And you really need a blend of both. You know, when clinicians without the training try to do research, it ends up costing them a lot. You know, like you just like you said, you think because I fell in the same boat, like, oh, this is easy. How hard can this be? And you make mistakes that are super costly. Like you waste all this data that you can't use because you didn't collect it the right way or you miss this component or you didn't register. There's like very few journals that are going to accept your publication if you didn't pre-register your trial anymore. So these, and I mean, that's just really recent, but 
all of these things, then you end up having this study that, you know, you're going to get accepted in a really, really low tier, low impact journal, just because you underestimated how well you had to, to plan everything. So those are lessons that you learn along the way. And it really becomes a full-time deal. And I would say, I mean, everyone learns differently, but I learned from observation and working with great people. So, I mean, any of my successes today are just attributed to these great people that have really poured into me and helped me along and shared their grants. You know, this is what a funded grant looks like instead of me having to contrive it out of thin air, like, hey, here's a couple examples. And it's like, oh, okay. Now that I see what right looks like, I, I, you know, I can replicate that much easier. It's very collaborative. What I've realized, some people are afraid to share their ideas because they think someone else is going to steal it and someone else is going to run with this research. So they're very secretive. I'm very open and I share a lot with people because what I've come to find out is it takes so much work and so much effort. If you really are going to steal my idea and run the study and get it completed and get it published all before I do, then hats off to you. Like, it's just not going to happen. These things don't just happen overnight, you know? And so we're in a much better place if we can work together and collaborate and share ideas. Research is doing research the right way is just so much harder. You got to pull people in, you know, work with, you know, now that I'm getting more experience and I have a lot of people reaching out to me. Hey, you know, I've got this idea, I've got that. And I really want to kind of help and mentor those people along just like, you know, others have done for me as well. But it's just a transition. Some of it is luck, I guess, in, ter- in terms of where you're at and whether you're, you're in a place that will give you some time and some support to help do research. And then you, as you build that experience, you can start adding to that and, and transition. And you might be in a setting where research is really, really supported. You might be in a setting where it's not. I've been in both in the military at different clinics. You know, RVUs and, and productivity are king and can't ignore that because that's what the administrators want. That's what they need. That's how the businesses roll. So if you don't have a solution that aligns with helping others meet their mission, you know, you're just going to end up bumping heads. So come up with creative solutions. Like how can I get to where I need to get to while helping you get to where you need to get to? And we can come up with a a collaboration that can benefit both parties. Yeah. I I mean, so taking it back to the grant side of things, I've written one grant exactly in my life and it was a $5,000 grant. And I thought that was awesome. I was like, yes. (laughs) Awesome. Congrats. It was pretty cool because it was implementing the use of the Nintendo Wii across some outpatient clinics for balance and and falls prevention and stuff like that. So that's the only grant I've written to to date. Now, things are obviously going to change because I've also only done one research study now in my life, and that was for my dissertation. And I thought I was done with research. I was like, great, finished it, never have to do it again. I am done, you know? I just wasn't ever really a huge research fan. And and I I was an English major, you know, coming into the PT school. So I thought I could write, but scientific writing is a completely different beast. And I've said this time and time again, you know, I could write the flowery stuff. I couldn't write the the science <laughs> stuff. So I had to relearn how to write for my dissertation. So that was just, they, they dragged me across that finish line, kicking and screaming. It wasn't pretty, but you know, I finished it. And now that I'm in academia, again, there is that push for like publish or perish kind of where you've, you've really got to do some research again. So starting the whole research train back up again. And the good news is 
now that I'm on the other side of the dissertation, you can collaborate with people. You know, I think you're being kind of humble with your, your backgrounds and how much mentorship and help you've got. Because like I said, I, I read your CV and it, it's about 35 pages. You know, it, it took me two days to get through. So your research is phenomenal. You know, I, I think you, you mentioned something in particular that really struck me. You said, you know, I've got all these grants and all this money. So now I've got all this power, right? But with great power comes great responsibility, you know, so I know it, like you said, you make some costly mistakes along the way, and you've learned a lot from that. But tell us a little bit about the grant process. Like, what does that look like? The, you know, if you're, you're putting together a grant, um, you know, for this, these bigger projects, even, what does that process look like? My gosh, it, it's pretty chaotic. I will preface that by saying, because one of your comments uh, just reminded me of this. If you would have told me when I graduated PT school that I was going to be a researcher, I think I would have probably laughed in your face. I was definitely not, you know, I was, I was definitely not at the top of my class. I wasn't at the bottom of the class either. I was just, you know, I was probably just right in the middle. I didn't really stand out for that. I have some of my professors from back then that are kind of shocked. You know, they're like, man, I would have never, th you know, pegged you know, you as being who you are right now, you know, so don't, don't let that ever predict or kind of set the stage for what you can become and what you can do if you want to. But I just remember thinking, I can't wait when I'm done with PT school and I've taken my boards, I'm just gonna, you know, you're studying, you're like, everything revolves around that. I'm just going to enjoy life. You know, I, I was married. We didn't have kids. I was just looking forward to like, just be done at the end of the day, enjoy the evenings the weekends. And there was nothing that, that I, I did not want to go back to school again. Like it was completely off my radar. I didn't even have a little bit of interest at all. And, uh, you know, things just change over time. And I think your interests and the things that sort of stimulate your mind and those just come in different iterations in time. And so maybe at one point in time, you're not there and things can switch. And so I think now I enjoy it because I feel like I'm a lot better at it. When you don't really understand it, it's really, really painful, you know, and, and, the analogy I've used with people is if you train for a marathon and you work your way up for it, then you go run the marathon. You can enjoy the marathon. You know what you're getting into. If you decide a week before a marathon, like I'm just going to sign up and run for this, right? It's, it's going to be really, really painful. And so if you're just not ready right then at research, you haven't prepped, you're, you're just transitioning into that. Like it can be really scary and it just doesn't sound exciting at all. But if you work your way up to it, worked with other people, participated in the process, I think it, it can be rewarding. And so I think my biggest, what I recommend to a lot of people that ask about this is that if you just get thrown into writing a grant from scratch, you know, like a really, really big grant, and you don't have any help or collaboration, like it's going to seem so overwhelming, probably going to turn you off. But if you, again, surround yourself with the right people and work with the right people, and you're not the primary, like work on, you know, help being an associate investigator or co-investigator with someone else that's doing something, you'll learn from them and their experience. You'll see how the process works. And then you do that a couple of times, and then you can build into taking the helm, uh, you know, by yourself of a project. And so I think it's really important to look for those opportunities to be a, a co-investigator, an associate investigator. What can I bring to the table? How can I help and learn how to do that? So that's the first thing. I mean, some of these big grants, I can literally spend an entire month doing nothing but writing a grant and then it not getting accepted. And, and, you know, it's like, I just wasted a whole month of work for that. You know, I keep coming back. I'm a glutton for punishment, but I guess once you get like, you know, you get one out of like 
five or six and it's like it just keeps you going and you kind of forget the pain of all the other ones Yeah, it's like golf right you finish on a great shot it keeps you coming back for more no matter how bad the round was right (laughs) yes yes exactly so the other thing is right now my salary is 100% based on grants so it's a little bit stressful in that I have to keep funding coming in you know in order to keep to keep me moving along it's a good and a bad thing like it's a stressful thing but I don't know if I would be as productive if I didn't have to perform, you know, so I don't, you know, I've thought a lot about that. I don't know if it's necessarily, it sounds bad, but I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing, but then writing the grants, you know, you've got to be something that you're, you're passionate about. You're willing to put in the time and effort in that you again, can work with other people, get examples of grants. I can tell you that when, you know, I've mentored quite a few people and there's no shortage of people with ideas. Like everyone has ideas of stuff to do, right? And I love to foster those people that are hungry to do things, ideas, but it's a lot fewer people that take it to the next step when it's like, okay, usually it's like, all right, get your city training done and then come back and talk to me and then we'll, you know, go the next steps. And so that weeds out like a lot of people, if you can even take time to do your city training, then, you know, you probably don't have enough time on your hands. But those that keep coming back and... You know, you give them something and, and I uh, hear work on this or they, you know, that just really keep trying and, and sending stuff back. I mean, I love working with those individuals and helping them kind of tweak and fine tune and, and getting to something that that's going to work. And so grants, a lot of grants is really just the grantsmanship, understanding like how people grade, how the reviewers are, you know, what they're looking for, what the checklists are. It's, there's a bit of a grantsmanship, like, am I, can I address everything? It can't be too confusing. You might not have somebody exactly in your specialty or your expertise that knows what you're writing. And so even though you think this piece is really important to put in the grant, if you can't simplify it so that the reviewer is not confused, you got to leave some of that stuff out there. Like it's really, that's not not really a game, but sort of, it's like, how do I tell this story in a way that isn't going to leave the reviewer confused? Because if they're confused about anything, you know, I'm I'm just not going to get a very good mark on it. So I've got to make it simple. I've got to make it look like I've addressed all the possible contingencies. And it's like, well, they've thought of everything, but it's got to be simplified, you know, not oversimplified where they're like, Hey, you know, this, this is just too, you know, too vanilla, but someone's got to be able to read it and just walk away and say, wow, that sounds like a great project. It's easy to follow. I don't see very many problems with that. And that's really just a communication. You know, you just learn how to communicate that better and, and write better. So let's look at the other side of that coin. Now, speaking of reviewers, you've been a peer reviewer. Talk a little bit about that process and what that looks like in comparison. Yeah. So you learn a lot. I like being a peer reviewer because you learn a lot. You get to see a lot of the papers that are getting pushed through. And as you read through those and you see really, really good papers, you see really, really bad papers. It's an opportunity for you to learn. It's an opportunity to give some critique and feedback. And I served on the IRB at one of the hospitals that I worked at a while back. And one of the statistics that was just, just really blew me away is the, the IRB chair or the the chief of the Department of Clinical Investigation, because we have a large GME programs, lots of medical students, everyone's trying to do research, but they don't have a lot of mentorship. There's not a lot of guidance. 90% of the projects that are put through the IRB never get finished that get approved. So only 10%. And 
I remember getting some of these and just thinking, oh man, these need so much help and trying to help as many as I could, but you just can't, you know, you're not in that position, but there's just very little mentorship out there. And so you learn a lot, but having somebody else look through your paper, read through your paper, does it read well? Does it make sense? So you learn a lot from the peer review process. And I think you also try to empathize a little bit, you know, like it doesn't feel good when you get a rejection letter or when you get something where someone put a lot of time and a lot of work into your manuscript and to have somebody, you know, if you're going to rip it apart, at least maybe rip it apart politely, you know, and soothe the, uh, the scars a little bit. So I try to keep that in mind and give constructive feedback. You know, it's, it's not about me identifying your weaknesses as much as, you know, you've got to think like, if, can they address this? If they address it, is it going to be a better paper or I don't even think that it can be fixed, even if they address this. And that's a, you know, it's an important distinction because you sort of think, okay, this can get through, but maybe they can fix this. But you're also thinking, and this is a little bit dangerous, I know, because, you know, this whole gatekeeper mentality, but if it really seems like it's not a good thing, you know, you just don't want to push that out there and let that be published if it really is based on something that can't be substantiated or poor methodology. So there's just a balance between all of that. But I think you learn a lot about the process with grants. I've been a grant reviewer before, and I learned tons about the process, looking at really well done grants. And then sometimes when these are competitive, like some of these grants, they have like a 10 to 14% funding rate. So you don't have to be good. You've got to be like, I mean, awesome. And so if you're going to put all this time into a grant, it's not even worth your time unless you're like going to go all out and give it 110% because it might just be a one point difference between getting funded and not getting funded. So it's interesting. Sometimes peer review though can just be luck. It's because people are different. People have different mentalities. People have different perspectives. And I could submit the same paper to the, to a journal and in some cases, everybody could agree, but then there's some cases and some places where it just depends on the, the reviewers that I was assigned. And that could be the difference between an acceptance or a not acceptance, depending on how passionate they are about whatever hill that they want to die on, you know. Um, it's always reviewer number two. You know? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's always a lot of pushback on that. I don't think the peer review process is perfect, but, you know, it's what we have. It's an all volunteer, you know, kind of a thing. And so many people have talked about this, how broken it is, the publishing model, how much money medical journals make and how we have to still pay to publish in them. And I mean, it's, that's a whole nother topic right there. Well, I, you know, I'm glad that my audience is, is learning from one of the best, um, recent uh, award winner of the APTA Eugene Michaels New Investigator Award. I think it's easy to say that uh, maybe not a new investigator, but new to the scene and new to the big name and bright lights for sure. You know, congratulations on that. That's an awesome award. And, you know, realistically, how do you incorporate some of this grant writing and this research that you do into some of the universities that you're still teaching with and giving back to? What kind of stuff are you bringing up for like DPTs that may be interested in doing research eventually. How does that tie in? Yeah. So I work with a lot of universities because I also realize where my strengths and limitations are, like lots of limitations, lots of weaknesses. So, you know, I would say be open to the possibility that you're wrong about the way that you think about something. And that probably sounds pretty straightforward, but, you know, it's not always the way we practice. Part of it is like, you know, we got to empower our brand new. PT students as they're coming out to be new PTs, like you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. And I think it's great. But sometimes, you know, you come out thinking like PT is the answer for everything. And, and then you want to defend that at all costs. I was probably like that earlier on in my career. And 
you know, that's just not very scientific. It, I think we can actually do a lot of great things if we take an honest approach. So like if we realize if our position is like PT is the answer for everything, you know, we're going to struggle behind that and people are going to call us out on that eventually. And I just don't think that's the right answer. But if it's, you know what, I'm okay and secure enough and maybe finding out that PT wasn't the best answer for this, that's not the end of the world. And how do we fix this? And how do we shape this? And how do we use that information to then improve the things that we are better at and what we can do. And so part of that, you know, where I'm going with that is that we've got to be willing to collaborate and work with other people. Like this grant that I just got was with a uh, licensed clinical social worker that we're both, you know, co-PIs on and a psychologist. And we're looking at a, a mindfulness intervention, which is, you know, being delivered by these clinicians after total knee replacement to reduce opioid use. And that's something that's definitely not in the PT wheelhouse, but, you know, post-operative care for total joint replacement is, and, you know, how can we work together? You know, there's a lot of really good data and a lot of really good preliminary results. And so it takes thinking outside the box and how can I bring these worlds together and look at something that hasn't traditionally always been sort of in the PT sphere of things. And, and then if I have somebody else that's an expert in something, pull them in and say, Hey, do you, you know, you're really good at this. Can, you know, can I pull you in and have you collaborate on this piece? And that's a lot of my connections and work with collaborators in academia are I'll pull people, you know, here or there that have different skill sets that I don't have to try to build a, a better, more well-rounded team. So I don't know if that answers your question directly, but I think, you know, teamwork is, is where it's at. And then just wanting to be involved and contribute, like what's the value that I'm going to bring of all the people that you can work with, what can I bring to the table? Even if I don't have all this knowledge, you know, what, what kind of work am I willing to do to come to the table so that I'll be value added and you'll think, man, working with Dan is great. You know, he's, uh, he brings this value and this value. So I want to work with him more. Yeah, I can definitely see that in, you know, a handful of my students right off the bat, whether, you know, they're just going above and beyond, they're going out of their way to just get involved in, in anything they can be helpful in, you know, even, you know, if it comes to research and they're not terribly sure they want to do research yet, but they're interested. I think mm -hmm. that curiosity kind of starts the, the conversation. Then the more they get involved, the more they can kind of see for themselves. Yeah, this is something I'm interested in. I need to do a deeper dive. And like you said, find ways to provide value. So I think that's super helpful. Well, Dan, I can't thank you enough for your time and for, for coming on the show today, but we like to ask all of our guests this one final question. And the question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? Man, there's a lot of things. Obviously, the costs going down, I think. That's the number one given answer, just FYI. Yeah, I think I would just wish it could be more of a interdisciplinary educational approach. So I wish that in the same way that physicians have all these rotations and kind of work in these settings with all the different discipline, even in school sometimes, like if what, what if we went to school where we in, D, in PT school, where you took some of the same classes as some of the other medical professionals did, you know, if there was like neuro class that was a basic class and you had your neurologists and your neuro PTs and your whatever that all attended together. So that way you, you have an infrastructure of education that's already multidisciplinary from the very beginning. I'm not saying that's feasible or whatever, but you, you know, in a perfect world, it just seems like that would kind of kickstart maybe collaborations a little bit better, get everybody 
uh, on the same page or closer to the same page. And I think it'd be a good thing. Yeah, I like that. I mean, that's part of why we started the podcast was to break down some of the silos between a lot of the professions, you know, and we've interviewed nurses and doctors and PAs and dentists. And, you know, we're just trying to see what their schooling is like and what their education is like and, you know, best practices, like we, we kind of said, you know, when I was at ECU, it was a master's program as well. And we had our gross anatomy class with nurse anesthetists and PAs. There were three groups. It was PT, PA, and, and uh, NAs. And, you know, we, we really did some pretty cool collaborations, even though we were grouped uh, by our, our profession, we still had conversations uh, amongst the three groups and we'd hang out after class and chit chat and stuff. So I think that definitely was, was helpful, you know, but that was unfortunately the only class that we took together. After that, we all went into our, our specialties. And a lot of that had to do with just the gross anatomy lab being only available at time, certain times and certain numbers and stuff. So I get it. It made sense, but I definitely think that uh, more uh, collaboration would definitely be helpful. And, you know, at USA where, where I'm teaching, you know, we're seeing that a lot with OTs and speech, but we still have a lot, a, a long way to go, I think, to, to perfect it and to really make it matter and make it count. Yeah, I think that's great. If I could give one, this isn't advice for everybody, but I think one good piece of advice that I try to give people when they ask me this about the whole DPT, you know, there's some programs that are DPT straight to a PhD program. And I can see where there could be potential value for that, but I just think if you can take a couple of years to practice clinically before getting going to take your get your PhD, I think you're going to have this perspective that I mean that you're just not going to have otherwise. You haven't been able to practice clinically, and now you're a, a researcher. You're you know your research questions are going to be so much more relevant because you're going to have just this experience that you can't get any, you know, otherwise. And so if, if you can do that, if you can practice for a few years and then go back to research, I know that's not always ideal. I just think you're going to be, you know, more well-rounded down the road for that. So for whatever that's worth. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I, I mean, you know, it doesn't help with the CAPTI numbers and, and having, you know, half of the faculty be terminal degrees, but that's another issue. We'll have to cross that bridge when we get to it, you know. But Dan, thank you again so much for your time and for coming on. We really appreciate it. Where can people reach out to you or find you on, on the world of social media? Should they uh, have any follow-up questions or just want to see what you're up to these days? Yeah, probably the best thing research-wise, I'm on Twitter, you know, at Dan Rohn. That's where I usually keep that to all the research and science and retweeting other people that I interact and work with. And so you can reach out to me that way or, you know, on LinkedIn as well. It's probably another easy way to, to find me. And yeah, please do reach out if you have any questions. Awesome. We'll drop all those links in the show notes to make it easy for everyone to find you. And again, thank you so much, Dan. I can't thank you enough for your time and for coming on to educate the audience on uh, a lot of big topics, a lot of heavy so I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for inviting me and having me on. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram 
HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.